If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take them and turn with me once again to the book of Philippians and to chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to continue in the sermon series that we've been on now for a few weeks entitled, Who Are We? And that's a question that we're asking ourselves. And, and when we're answering that question, the, the answer that we're coming up with is, well, we're we're not just looking for an answer. Well, we're a group of people who meet together at 2500 Ivy Creek Road at a church called Ivy Creek. And we meet there at 930 on Sunday mornings and also at 11 o'clock on Sunday mornings. We're not looking for, for that kind of an answer so much as we're looking to see who are we supposed to be? Who are we really based upon what the scriptures teach us about the fact that we're, we're believers in Christ who have been united together under the Lordship of Christ and that the Holy Spirit uh, has brought us together. Who are we supposed to be? That's the question that really we're attempting to try to answer uh, with this. I, I told you when we began this series that, that we looked at this, these same passages seven years ago. And seven years ago, when we, we were walking through this, sort of the Lord kind of revealed this to me, not, not because I started out with it as, as we are in this uh, particular context, but there, just to kind of reading out of the text, sort of helped me come to this, this statement. It should be there in your bulletin, but the, who we are at Ivy Creek is, and if you know it, you can state me with me, we are a you-all, gospel-first, servant-hearted family of believers that want our lives to count for the glory of God. I think as we work our way through the book of Philippians, we're going to continue to see that more and more and more. And so as we, we understand that that's who we are, then, then, then let me just say what we recognize is that this, this book of Philippians, though it has some really high mountain peak passages, we looked at one of those last week, those, those deep theological passages, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, what I call the, the great parabola of Scripture. It's also the mountain peak passage, deep waters theologically. While they are certainly there in the book of Philippians throughout this entire letter, what we really see is that it's some really practical stuff. It, it, it's, it's, it's stuff that, that Paul writes that's supposed to, in light of all of these wonderful truths that, that you've been revealed, here's how this ought to work out in your life. And Paul is telling this to these Philippian believers who are trying to figure out how are we supposed to relate one to the other within the context of the church? And how are we to let these truths of Scripture infiltrate our lives and help us to, to relate to those folks who are outside the walls of the church, to those folks that don't share the same, the same understandings, the same values that we have, the same beliefs that we have. And so Paul is writing this to these, this group of believers and saying, in light of who you are, here is how you ought to respond and how you ought to act. As I was reading this passage this week, I was reminded that there are certain people that we've got even some in our service this morning who, who, who make their living out of being personal trainers. They're, they're folks that help other people figure out how to work out. You can tell I utilize them a lot in my own personal life. I have in the past and years, years gone by and they would, they, they'd tell you, you know, use this, use this circuit. Go through this circuit using these machines this day and then on this day use these circuits and, and, and then do these exercises and use this sort of weight pro program. And, and, and the whole goal there, it's a good worthy goal is to help the physical body get tuned up and tuned in to how it, how it best would respond. What I want you to know is the Apostle Paul is doing a little something like that in the text we're going to look at this morning. He's not concerned primarily about our physical health, but he is concerned about our spiritual health. And he puts us on what I've kind of referred to as a spiritual workout plan. 
In fact, that's how I've titled the sermon today. And we're going to see that in light of everything that he's told us thus far in this text, he begins to put us on a spiritual workout plan that we can begin to utilize in our lives. So begin reading with me there. In chapter 2, we're going to look down at verse 12. You'll notice that the first word there is therefore, which tells us that everything that follows relates back to what he's previously told us. And he says this, my beloved but therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this day and thank you for this opportunity we have to gather around your word. Now, I do pray that your spirit would help us to understand that which you would have us to to apply to our lives this morning as we leave this place. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. You know, as I was studying this text this week, I couldn't help but think back to some of my my years in elementary and uh, probably even up in the middle school. And it was, it was during those times, whenever the teacher would, would leave the room, um, that seemed like that was a cue for everyone else in the room to, 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 to kind of start goofing off and to start talking. I was very disappointed in my classmates, personally. Um, I, I thought we should have behaved better in the teacher's absence. But, uh, you know, there was a lot of that going on, and, you know, whenever the teacher was out of the classroom. In fact, what we found necessary was we needed to put a lookout you know what to look at. You know that person. You, you get the one person. I'm not going to participate, but I will tell you when the teacher's coming back kind of person. And so they would stand and kind of look out the window and wait for the teacher and let us all know so that we could all get back in our, in our seats. Now, I know for you teachers out there, you're shocked that that went on behind your back. But nevertheless, I couldn't help but think about that then, but when I read what Paul writes there in verse 12. He says, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That that verse there is very similar to what he wrote back in chapter 1, verse 27. If you can just look back over one page and you'll see it. He says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to you and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together the faith of the gospel. You hear what he's saying there in both of those verses. He's basically telling these Philippian believers that they were to live their lives in an appropriate, obedient way, whether he was present with them or not. And and notice the reason why he says that. In In verse 12, he begins with that word, therefore. And as I said, that means everything he's just told us is the reason for why he's telling us what he says here. And what has he just told us? Well, he's just told us that that the Lord Jesus Christ, who existed in his preeminent and preexistent glory, left heaven's throne to come to earth to take on the form of humanity and a bond slave and to be crucified on Calvary's cross. 
And therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That, that swoop, that parabola that we looked at last week, that whole example of what Jesus has done for us serves as the reasoning for why he's going to tell us how we are to live our lives, those of us who have been united to him. And what I suggest is that that this is not so much a workout plan to teach us how to go to the gym and work out. It is a workout plan to teach us how to live our lives every day within the confines of the church and outside the walls of the church in the communities and the world in which we live. We're going to get to that in a moment, but let me address the, the, the thing that tends to get people tripped up sometimes. It's the phraseology. It's the word workout your own salvation. That may sound to our, when we first hear it as though Paul is contradicting himself. Think about it this way. He's the champion of the gospel of grace. He's the one who wrote in Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. He says, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. In other words, it's not a work that Paul says there that, that, that saves us. It's our belief in Jesus Christ. It's our faith in Christ. That saves us. Remember also, Paul is the one who wrote those famous words in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Paul is stating, look, our salvation comes to us not by working. Our salvation comes to us by faith in what Jesus Christ, in the work that Jesus has done. So when we get back here to Philippians, are we to assume that Paul has changed his mind? Has he changed his stance in some way and, and, and no longer believes that salvation is not all of grace, but that we have to work at it too? Is that what work out your salvation with fear and trembling means? Well, let me just say to you, no, that's not what it means at all. How can we know that? Well, we know, first of all, that the book of Philippians is written to the saints who live in Philippi. In other words, when he addresses the book of Philippians to begin with in chapter 1, verse 1, he's writing to the believers who are assembled together as the church there in Philippi. And so when he's telling them, he's not talking to unbelievers about how they are to gain their salvation. He's actually writing to believers whose faith is in Christ, and he's telling them how they ought to live out their salvation. And in that regard, let me say this to you as well. I've made this statement many times. Prepositions are incredibly important. Theology hangs upon the use of prepositions. That is never more the case than right here. And I want to prove that to you. Notice what Paul does not say. Paul does not say work for your salvation with fear and trembling. He does not say work through your salvation with fear and trembling. He does not say work at your salvation with fear and trembling. He says work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That preposition is incredibly important because it makes, it gives us the assumption that we know what Paul is writing from this understanding. Look, you who have been saved, you whose, whose life is, possesses the, the power of the Holy Spirit within you. That salvation is something you possess. It's got to work its way out into how you live. It's not something to be just cocooned up inside your life and never find its way to, to, to seep out among the, the world around you. No, you're to work it out. It's something that you already possess. It's not something you're trying to get. It's something you already have. Now let it affect the way that you live your life. 
That's what it means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I think that that's a, a clear understanding of that. I think in some respects that, that the apostle Peter also echoed Paul's words. In, in, in 2 Peter 1 verse 10, he tells us there, he says, make your calling and your election sure. What does that mean? Well, it simply means that the walk of a believer is absolutely crucial. How you and I live our lives, how, how we're to live out our salvation is absolutely important stuff because there are many who profess Christ, but their lives never seem to reveal Christ in the way that they walk. Their salvation never seems to work its way out of them into useful living. And, and what we read here is that that should never be able to be said of a you all gospel first family. It shouldn't be said of us. So hopefully that clears up the first point of confusion with verse 12, but then there's still another one because many kind of trip up over the phrase with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Does that mean that Paul says that we're to walk around anxious and nervous and on edge about the fact that we could lose our salvation? Is he, is he saying to us that we need to be on the razor's edge about whether or not our, whether our life matches up to a certain standard so that we might uh, no longer be in the group and we can get kicked out of the group? Is that the fear and trembling? Is that the, the understanding that he, that he wants to say? Well, once again, if that's what Paul means, then he is at odds with himself. And we don't have to look far to find out that, that what he has said even earlier in this letter, written to the same people at the same time by the same person, tells us this, back in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, what I want you to notice is that Paul's confidence when he wrote that back just a few verses earlier, his confidence was not in himself and his confidence was not in the people to whom he was writing. His confidence was in God. His confidence was in Jesus Christ who had saved them and given him his spirit. And so his full confidence that everything that Christ had done in them would be completed rested in the same one who had saved them, Jesus Christ, not in them. So based upon that verse alone, we can realize within, then when he writes about work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he's not telling the believers that, look, you can lose your salvation, that God in some way will be impotent in being able to carry you all the way through. No, he's already established that. What he is saying, however, I believe, by that phrase, with fear and trembling, is communicating to us how incredibly important working out our salvation is. It's incredibly important to, to recognize that, that we, we have a, a mindset of wholehearted obedience to Jesus and that we do not drift away. Have you ever thought and considered in your own mind how easy it is to drift I won't ask you for a show of hands, but I can raise both of mine and tell you how easy it is to drift. The, the mental image in my mind that I get is, on, is, is, is like a snow-covered snow field. And, and if you see like this, this cabin and you see footprints coming out of that cabin and you watch the footprints in that snow, you can tell something about the person that came outside based upon where their footprints go. If you see footprints that take, take a straight line, you know that they had a mission, they had a point that they were pointing to, and they kept their eyes on that point, and they walked across that snow-capped field straight toward what they were looking for. But then, if you see that snow-covered field, and you see 
footprints and they're going here and they're sweeping around and going there and they're going circles back over here and going. What you, what you can be assured of is that there were things, there were things that were attracting that person's attention as soon as they stepped outside and it made them turn this direction and chase it there and then, no, well, we need to go over here and chase it there. And you see these footprints and they're moving all over the place. What you recognize is, is that they drifted off of the point that they should have been on. Brothers and sisters, drifting is something that happens to every one of us. And it happens whenever we take our eyes off Jesus. It happens every time that we lose focus upon the number one thing in our lives, which we are to be a gospel-first family of believers. The gospel needs to be number one in our lives, regardless of anything else. <clears throat> but the world around us and the, 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 the things of daily life tend to jump up and get us. Activities that we need to get to over here and responsibilities that we have over there and, and issues that we're dealing with, with with things over here tend to just cause us to sometimes just start circling around and we get distracted and, and, and we tend to drift. And what Paul is telling us here is that with fear and trembling, <laughs> we need to work out our salvation recognizing how incredibly important it is that we keep everything in the right order. And that we keep moving toward Jesus with a gospel first focus. Here's the encouraging part. Even though we, even though sometimes all of us can admit to the fact that we've gotten distracted and we've circled back and lost our way. Even though we recognize how often we fail, we can take comfort in knowing that, that God has not left us to our own devices. In fact, notice what Paul says. He says in verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to, to will and to do for his good pleasure. In other words, as D.A. Carson has stated God works in us at the level of our will and at the level of our doing. You realize that your will determines what you do. You, 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 you determine what you're going to do here, and then it works its way out into what you're going to do here. Thankfully, God is at work in both of those, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Thankfully, that is true for those of us who are believers. And so the question is, how are we then to do that? How are we to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? It's taken us a little while to get there, but I want to just give you three things that I think Paul tells us in this passage about how we're to, to, to engage in this spiritual workout plan. And the first thing that I would just say to you that Paul tells us is that, first of all, believers are not to be complainers. I got the same response in this service that it got in the first one. Believers should not be complainers. Paul minces no words in verse 14. He says, do all things without complaining and disputing. That was one of my favorite verses to quote to our, with our kids when they were young. I think it's one of their favorite verses to quote back to me now that they've gotten older. Do all things without complaining and disputing. In other words, this spiritual workout plan that Paul is putting us on begins with what not to do. Don't complain. That makes incredible sense in, in, in based upon the context. You remember the therefore there at verse 12 points us back to what came before it? Jesus who had every right and everything that was owed to him set it all aside. 
and came to earth in order to be crucified on a Roman cross so that you and I might be saved. If there was any person who has ever lived and drew a breath of oxygen into their lungs, Jesus had the right to complain. But according to the writer of Hebrews, he says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Listen, if Jesus is our example, and he set it all aside to come and to be servant for us, Paul says, do not be a complainer. If you're going to follow Christ and you're going to take on his attitude into yourself, be one who lives without complaining. It's, it's a great word, that word complaining. It's the Greek word. I'm going to teach you a Greek word today. It's gaguzmos. Try it. Gaguzmos. It's a bunch of G's. Gaguzmos. Gaguzmos. You can, you can go and use that with your friends and they'll, they'll appreciate that. They'll think you're really smart. I like it because it sounds just like what muttering is. Gaguzmos, gaguzmos. That guy gets on my nerves. Gaguzmos, I get so sick and tired of having to deal with this, t- this every single time. I gaguzmos, gaguzmos. I wish that guy in front of me would use his gas pedal and quit using his brake. Gaguzmos, gaguzmos. <laughs> it's a discontented muttering. It's a low-toned aggravation. And you're not necessarily talking to anybody else. You could just be talking to yourself. You can express it to somebody else, but muttering and grumbling under your breath, that's what this word is. Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. It's not becoming of a believer. The other word that's there is the word dialogismos. Now, if you listen closely, you get where that word, that's dialogue, comes from that word. But here, the way that it's used, it's a dialogue that is is argumentative in nature. We're going to take somebody on. I don't like your opinion. So I'm, you're fixing to find out what mine is. It's that whole idea that head starts bouncing. Mm-hmm. It's about to get on. Dialogismos. Gagusmos is more of internal. Ugh, I don't like this. Dialogismos is more of a, I'm, I'm ready to fight. I'm ready to argue. What Paul says is that in both cases, this is not what a believer is to act like. Because such actions betray a critical spirit and a spirit that does not submit itself to Christ. So clearly working out our salvation necessitates that as believers, we not be complainers. And that statement tells us that our responsibility, what it is negatively, what we are not to do. But Paul's not done because he wants to tell us what we are to be. And that's the second thing that we note on your outline. You'll see this morning. Believers should be positive examples. Believers should be positive examples. Verse 15, Paul says that we are to shine as lights in the world. A world that he describes as being made up of a crooked and perverse generation. Many people point to the fact that Paul obviously has the nation of Israel in mind here. If you remember when Israel was, was delivered from Egypt and they went and they, they, they refused what God had given to them directly, he sent them to, to wander aimlessly for a while out in the desert. And you remember what happened? They muttered. They grumbled. They grumbled at God. They grumbled at Moses. They grumbled at Aaron. They grumbled at one another. They didn't like what they were eating. They liked what they used to eat. They wanted to go back to the way things were. And as a result of it, Deuteronomy 32 verse 5 says that Moses says that they became a crooked and twisted generation. 
Paul obviously remembered that and brought it forward. And he says, instead of you being a crooked and twisted generation, serve as lights in the dark world. How do we do that? Well, Paul says in verse 15 that we're to live blamelessly and harmlessly and without fault. A blameless life is, a, is one that is pure and without defect. Uh, the word harmless might be better translated as unmixed. Greg Allen has noted that this combination of words suggests that the act of living by believers is to be lived in such a way that it is consistent with our profession of faith. A profession with which no fault could be found and toward which no accusation could be made that it was mingled with unfaithfulness and sin. Alan, he goes on to, to make an excellent point that I think is worthy of our consideration. It's an example of this. He says, the Bible teaches us in Romans eight twenty eight that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. But then he writes, he says, and yet when we enter into trying times with an attitude of complaint and disputing, we basically tell the world that we really don't believe that God works all things out for our good. And when that happens, he writes, we deny what we profess and we end up communicating to the unbelieving people that we don't have anything more going for us in Christ than they do outside. Brothers and sisters, that is why Paul tells us that rather than being complainers and arguers, we are to live contented, upright, holy lives in submission to God's will. And by living this way, we will serve as positive examples to the crooked and perverse generation and world around us. That is what working out our salvation looks like practically. And notice what Paul says that the life of a believer in Christ should serve he says it should serve as a positive example, as a light. It really is like a luminary. It's something that, that reflects the light of Christ that has shone upon us. It is something that, that the world around us can see and notice that there's a difference against the inky black drop of the world around us. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. But in order to serve as, as, as a positive example and to do that, notice verse 16 tells us that we are to hold fast to the word of life. Some of your versions may show, may, may read to hold forth the word of life. So which is it? Do you hold fast to it or do you hold it forth? I'm going to suggest that you do both. I'm going to suggest you hold fast to it because the word of life in it, it shows everything about who we, are, who we are worshiping. It tells us the way of life. It tells us the eternity that is, theirs because, is ours because of this word. It points us to Jesus, the only source of life. And so as a result of that, our only hope comes from what is revealed to us in this text. So we hold fast to the word of life, to our, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But because it is our only hope, and Jesus is our only hope, he's the world's only hope as well. So we hold it forth. We not only cling to it for ourselves, we hold it out for the world to see. And so I don't see any conflict whatsoever between those understandings. In fact, I see that they dovetail perfectly together. So listen, if we're going to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, we will be believers who are not, who are not complainers, but we will also be believers who set positive examples for others. That leads me to the third thing that we see here. And the third part of our spiritual workout plan that Paul reveals in this passage is that we need to be joyful even in the face of sacrifice. 
Believers need to be joyful, even in the face of sacrifice. Paul goes on to talk about, hey, if I'm even being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. He said previously up in, in verse 16, I may rejoice that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Remember, Paul is writing this as he is a prisoner in, in, in awaiting what could be the end of his life. He doesn't know for sure if he's ever going to walk out of that prison alive or if they're going to take his head off. Ultimately, he did walk out alive, later to be, to be sacrificed in that way. But nonetheless, he was saying, look, no matter what happens, I'm like a drink offering being poured out on the, the offering of your sacrifice. Back in the Old Testament times when an animal was going to be offered for a sacrifice, before they would light the fire to incinerate the, the sacrifice, there would be a, a, a bottle of oil and, and, and wine that would be poured over the top of that animal. And it was done so that when the fire would light the, the sacrifice, that it would produce a pleasing aroma to God. And Paul says, I see myself as that. You guys are sacrificing for the glory of God. And I had a little bit to do in that because I came to you and, and I've been a part of your life. And now if I'm being poured out, I just want the aroma of my life to be found pleasing to God as you live your life out in sacrifice as well. And he says, I'm rejoicing in that and I want you to rejoice in it as well. Look, you can't turn a corner in the book of Philippians and not come across the word joy. In fact, Philippians 4.4 4 is the one that we all hear all the time, right? It's in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. It's not rejoice in the Lord sometimes when things are going the way I want it to. It's rejoice in the Lord always, even when, even when things aren't going my way, even when sacrifice comes, even when difficult times shoot my way. I have to rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because my hope is in the Lord. My hope is not in my circumstances. My hope is in the Lord. And I want my life to be poured out as a blessing, as a aroma that goes to Him and is pleasing to Him. And so, we come out what it means to work out our salvation. With fear and trembling, well, once again, we come to that, that understanding that it means that we are to rejoice in the Lord always. Well, let me point out the contrast that exists there. You can't rejoice in the Lord always if you're grumbling and complaining and disputing. That's not a joyful attitude. But you can rejoice even when the difficult times come because you recognize that God uses those difficult times to bring glory to himself. And so that's what it means to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So what we've learned today is that the behavior of a believer should be the same all the time, not just when the preacher's there. It's not, when, not, when somebody, not just when mama is there or daddy's home. It ought to be consistent all the time because we realize we're living our lives under the view of God. We've been united together as people underneath his lordship. And when He is truly Lord of our lives, we live our lives. We don't need a lookout. We don't need someone to tell us when someone's coming so that we can behave differently. It just becomes the nature of who we are to live our lives for the glory of God. That's the first thing. And then we've learned that it's serious business. That's why we do it with fear and trembling. To be a gospel-centered people means that we take the way that we live so seriously. Because we recognize that we are, we, are creating, we are creating a testimony among a lost and a dying world. So we must live 
content, holy, pure lives and live a, a lifestyle that will serve as a stark example from that which is seen from the lives around us. And then living in such a way will bring great joy to us because we bring glory to God. And that's what leads me to my sermon in the sentence this morning, which is this. As members of this you all gospel first family of believers, we must live peaceful, holy, and upright lives that serve as examples for others to follow and cause us to live lives full of joy. That's who we're called to be. Now, here's the important question. Does that description fit you? That's who we're called to be. That's who this text reveals that we are supposed to be. Here's the, here's the real question. Is that you? Does that describe you? Are you content or, or, or do you find yourself complaining and grumbling and all about your circumstances? Maybe you're complaining and grumbling about somebody else. You're complaining and grumbling at God. You're even arguing and disputing with him because of the place that you find yourself in life and you're just not happy. I want you to know the Bible clearly tells us that that is not appropriate behavior for a believer. We are to live peaceful, submissive, content lives in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. This passage also requires us to examine ourselves to see if we're living pure and holy lives. Can it be said that what others see of us matches what we say of ourselves? Does the way that we live day in and day out in our homes, in our places of work, in our schools, in the everyday activities, do those activities, do the way that we live our lives there match up to what we testify about ourselves? I want you to know those are important questions because they aim at the core of who we are and the scriptures have said that we are to live lives that are holy and pure so that we might serve as positive examples for others to follow. Is that the case? And finally, this text demands us to wrestle with that issue of joy because you know what? Life can be difficult and circumstances may be hard and it can be very easy for us to just check out and become jaded and become angry. Paul says that we are to live joyful lives, lives that point others to Jesus and to the joy that we have in him. Is that the circumstance with you? That's what it means. I believe what it means clearly for us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Now, let me say this to you. If you're examining yourself right now and you're you're frustrated because you know I'm not living that way and I'm frustrated with it and I'm just, maybe I just need to throw my hands up and quit. Let me remind you, let me remind you that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. Let me remind you that it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. You are not left to yourself. You have the loving God of heaven who has called you to himself, who has also given you the spirit of God to work in you, to bring about conviction of sin so that you may repent of that sin and return to him. And all who will find him will come to him in repentance, will find that he is a, he is a loving God who will receive any and everyone who comes to you. As a friend of mine put it this week, maybe what you need to do is to humble yourself before the mighty hand of God and acknowledge his total sovereignty over your life and repent of the habits and the ways and living that keep you from living a life that is pleasing to him. Maybe that is step number one. If you've never done that, 
then the first thing to do is just humble yourself before God and come to him and be saved. That's step one. In just a moment when we sing, Pastor Ted, Pastor Dave, myself will be up front. There's not a soul in this room would look down upon you if that's where you found yourself today. You come take one of our hands and say, I just want to, I want to be, become a believer. I want my life to be changed. I want to give my heart to Christ. And I want my future, my eternity to be changed as a result of that. You come talk to us. We will spend time with you from now on after this service. If you've done that, maybe, maybe repentance is still what's there. That you recognize that your heart has been given to Christ, but you're still holding a lot back from him. Maybe today is the day that you come to realize that I've got to get on this spiritual workout plan that, that actually is accomplishing something. And I, my life needs to reflect that of Jesus. I believe that's what this text is teaching us. And I believe, brothers and sisters, if we're going to be part of this you all gospel first family, then we are being called to live peaceful, holy, and upright lives that will serve as examples for others to follow and will cause us to live lives of joy. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this day and for your word that God is, is really so clear. We try to make it more difficult than it actually is. I think that's because when we realize what it takes to live this way, it, it's demanding it, it demands something of us. Father, we can't shake that. And I dare not soften the demands of what taking up our cross and following Christ means. So Lord, all I ask for is that your Holy Spirit would just come and bring conviction into my life and the life of these, my brothers and sisters, that you would continue to propel us and to push us further down the road of spiritual maturity that we would be willing to take up our cross, that we would be willing to set aside the grumbling and complaining that perhaps has become so part of who we are, that we would take seriously the responsibility that we have to be examples that others can follow, and that we, we choose to live a life with joy, regardless of what our circumstances may be. I pray that that would be said of us here at Ivy Creek, not that anyone would ever exalt us but so that you would be exalted you are the only one who is deserving of that so I pray that that would be the testimony of this church thank you for loving us as you have in Christ's name amen